Hi, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Josh Rosenfield. I'm here with Soren Howe, and we're talking about episode 10 of season two, Advances None Miraculous. Uh, this was a this was a hell of an episode, huh? It was it was certainly something. So remember, we have to keep in mind that this is uh, this is Daniel Minahan who's doing the uh, the movie. I know you were you were unsure last week because you it had been a while since he had directed anything uh, in the show. So in terms of remembering, although the episodes we did we did note that the episodes he had directed we did like. Um, but do you feel are you do you feel a bit better? About I it feel kind of incredible about it. You know, it's funny. <laughs> I I watched this episode thinking it was an Ed Bianchi joint. Um, I don't know why I thought that. I just I, did. Did he direct last week's? Uh, yeah. So I think week. I got that mixed up in my memory. I thought he was directing this week's. Um, and I was watching. It, I was like, damn, this guy. You know, this guy knocked it out of the park yet again. He's killing it. Um, <laughs> he's our man. And then I was like, oh, this was Dan Minahan. And you know what? Like, I think this was one of the best directed episodes I've seen. Like, I thought this was phenomenal. So I am no longer. Like I, you know, I said in previous weeks, I kind of wish Ed Bianchi was doing the movie. That the skepticism is gone, the veil is lifted from my eyes. <laughs> I am ready. Dan Daniel Minahan is the truth. I believe in him because wow. Well, he's directed such different episodes in the past, right? Uh, like Suffer the Little Children and all that stuff. Like they're all really quite different from each other. And this even this episode was well, I suppose it's about children in a way, but um, it's the the way it's um, like the subject matters just completely different and i think he's consistently done a good job so yeah i'm excited to see the uh see how he takes on the film especially you know the other thing is you know you can evaluate how someone is in 2000 and what for uh but after 13 years or so um directors change as well so you know who knows what any of these directors are like these days um but yeah no awesome yeah no i uh I, I'm, I'm glad you liked it i liked it too um, I wasn't as I actually I liked last week's episode more just because I felt like there was more things that I was I found unique about it and um, I guess a bit different. But I liked this episode. I thought it was. Uh, it was I cool. think I'm prepared to say that this is my favorite episode of the show so far. I don't know if I'm just oh, like wow. I'm really riding high on it, but I f- <laughs> it's so weird. I felt like I was watching like a Hong Sang Su movie. There was just such a clarity to Minahan's direction. There was such a like mm. a clarity of purpose and a specificity to his composition and his shot selection. Like I think keep thinking of this shot when I, it's um, who who's looking at, I can't remember. I think it's Co- Doc Cochran who's looking in to his own cabin and he sees Seth yeah. and Martha at, at William's bedside. And it's through this, like it's, it's through this blur of, of the glass and it's such a right. And like, he holds on that for a while and, and the specific way that it is, um, uh, that they are op- made opaque through the blur of this glass is so interesting to me, and it's just just like there's just such a well. Then the reverse shot is clear. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's and then he goes from inside. It's it's perfectly clear, and there's just such a such a like I said specificity to the to uh, specific actions. The way he directs actors, I think, is really really good. Um. There's specific performances we can talk about later, but I think that he he is drawing something out of the actors that, you know, they're always phenomenal every single week, but they needed something 
this is a unique episode in that every mm-hmm. everyone really everyone except Al is on the same wavelength in that everyone is really stressed out in a way they normally aren't and for the right. same reason. So I think as a director, you have to, you know, with TV actors, they're kind of used to coming in every week and, you know, not necessarily playing the same thing, but excuse me, but playing in the same register, you know, they kind of know their character. They know where their, where their center is and they're playing from that. But this is an episode where, um, everyone is in a very specific place that is different from where they normally are. And Minahan, I think does a good job of getting everyone on the same level. Be, you know, like you just take two like size performance and Trixie's performance are of a kind. They're of a piece. They feel like obviously they're from, they are the way they are, the way they're acting is for the same reason in this episode, but, and, and it's two different performances, but they feel like, uh, like a pair and every, everything feels like connected. It feels like a coherent, uh, like map of these characters. Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I liked, uh, uh, I liked how they were able to put everyone on edge that way. And I actually thought it was funny because they often give Al a moment in episodes like this to be, uh, more empathetic or, or softer, even though that seems to run counter to his character. But in fact, because it happens so frequently, we've come to learn that it is part of his character. Um, but he doesn't get that here, uh, which I, I don't know. I guess I was kind of expecting it. Um, and you get, I don't know, there's kind of an allusion to that at the end. It's not really clear where that's going um, or what it's supposed to mean, I guess. Um, but yeah, so I thought it was actually because you, you pointed out he's one of the few characters who doesn't seem particularly agitated by it. Or maybe he is, and he, that's just what he says. Um, well, yeah. You know, that, that could be an, yeah, that could be also sort of a, a, a thing that's, you know that he's he's putting forward a certain facade, but actually he's quite bothered by it. I, well, he's not allowing himself to be bothered by it. I think, right? Like he is he is the one character who is not letting it get to him, and I think that obviously manifests in what we see as oh well, he is not bothered. He he is not he is. I think he says at one point like that. That's not my business. That's not my concern. Yeah. Um, but he is when we see him at the end of this episode, and again, Ian McShane unbelievably good actor you just see in his eyes this like as he's watching as he sees Saul uh walking away from from Cochran's cabin and he kind of knows what that means um mm-hmm. you just see like the the there's the, there is that softness and there is that pity that we don't normally see from him yeah I mean I I, I did get a little bit of that I think also he's trying to keep himself busy the whole episode yeah with other sure. things so he's distracted you know um and that's part of what keeps him from getting involved in the in the, in what's going on with with uh, with William um, and uh, Seth and Martha. Um, but yeah, so uh, do you want to just uh, do a recap of the episode? So yeah, let's run down. Like I, like we've been kind of alluding to, every this is another one of those episodes where there's lots of little strands that are all coming off this central event. Um, the central event being William is dying in Cochrane's cabin, and the first thing we see, like we talked about last week, like I talked about last week, is we see Hostetler and uh, Fields in the in the livery. They've really Hostetler has shut himself in the livery because he's terrified of. Well, he sees. Um, well, first Fields sees Seth carrying William, uh, who's clearly injured, 
and Hostetler realizes what this means and he imme- his immediate response is, well, I'm going to kill myself. I'm not going to let them lynch me. I'm not going to let them torture me. I'm like, I, I have to kill myself. And Fields basically convinces right. him, look, let's get out of town. You can clear your head and then we'll decide what to do. But agreeing that they can't stay there. Right. Um, and again, like a lot of, a lot of little things. Uh, Cy tells his minions, Leon and Con Stapleton to drag Mose Manuel uh, to the Chesame because obviously Cochran is busy. Um, and the, it's interesting, this episode kind of, we talked about last week how it was cutting between all these different events that were kind of building to this climax. And this episode picks up uh, in the middle of a lot of them. You kind of, at least I did, I kind of forgot that a lot of these hadn't resolved. So like the thing with Mose Manuel hadn't resolved, his body is, he's still alive, first of all, we which I didn't think he was. Uh, but also Miss Isringhausen is still in Al's office and she has not yet signed these papers. And um, she is sort of hesitating to do so. She is saying, this doesn't, I don't want to do this because it's not in your best interests. It doesn't make it, I, I don't trust you. And Al says, basically, look, you can trust that I'm going to slit your throat if you don't sign these papers. Um, at which point Merrick shows up and tells Al that Commissioner Jerry is back because Merrick was looking for his gum and he so happened to see it on Blazinov's desk, the telegram. Uh, Merrick seems kind of delighted in his uh, position to be sort of a spy now and be be in on the uh, the backroom dealings that Al is the center of. Uh, Dan is going to... Dan is being sent to round up Saul and Hawkeye, who's, uh, who's uh, Adams's uh, partner, but uh, Hawkeye's gone, and there's this. There's a whole series of events where he needs to find Hawkeye, but he finds Adams, and he turns out Al only wanted Hawkeye so that he could find out where Adams was. But he really needs Saul, and what Al wants from Saul is he wants to, um, basically, inform Silas of the details of uh, like the higher ups in Montana. And who, who the who the most the names of the influential people and what their deal is, because Al is planning to use uh, to use Adams to uh, lay a trap for Commissioner Jerry that they execute later in the episode. Jerry meets with Al and si- uh, Adams. I'm sorry, I keep saying Silas, but that's what it his name is in the synopsis. Um, <laughs> Adams is uh, pretending to be really really angry with Jerry, basically to. Uh, I think to make Jerry feel feel good about himself because Jerry is the kind of guy who likes feeling superior to people. So he gets to play the calm and reasonable one. And um, Adams tells the story about how he was sent to Montana by Seth and that this very influential man named Clark has offered Al $50,000 for their support and the, and the man was a go-between who was operating out of the back of a restaurant and he was wearing a bag over his head. And it's, I think Jerry says something like it strains credulity, but he, he does believe it. And he takes it back to sigh that, yeah, we, you know, uh, Yankton needs to make a counter offer. Um, and obviously this was, this was their plan all along. Um, Lots of little stuff we can get to. That those are kind of the big beats. 
the the other big beat is that uh, Hostetler uh, talks himself into the, on, on the outskirts of town. He talks himself into this idea after he hears a wild horse that if they bring back the horse that trampled William and offer to, I think he says, pay their respects to the family, that they might be able to leave town uh, unperturbed. He's worried that they're going to be pursued, and he figures that if they sort of bring back this horse as an as a gesture of goodwill and as an apology, that there might be some forgiveness, and they agree that they'll do this, but after that they will leave camp forever. And finally, the return of Andy Kramed, who was the guy who brought the plague to town. He was sort of a pariah, and now he's a minister. And he's come because he's heard that, first of all, Deadwood doesn't have a minister, but he's heard that a young boy is dying. And he he makes his way to uh, the bedside, and Seth comes out, and he kind of talks to him, and you can they don't hear their conversation, but you kind of see that Seth realizes what this means, that a minister has come, and he, and he lets him inside, and Saul walks, uh, and Saul finally leaves. And like we said, Al watches this happen, and Al realizes what's happened. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty bleak ending for an episode. Mm. Well, I mean, last episode also, it's, <laughs> Deadwood doesn't always end. No, doesn't no. End. <laughs> not, that, not this season particularly. Not this season. Um, so, um, yeah, no, I, uh, I, yeah, that's a, that's a, a good summary of the episode. It is, it is like previous episodes. The past few episodes haven't had a lot of like a plot, B plot going on. Um, it's much more of a, uh, it's all sort of concentrated around. There's like little scenes, but mostly it's concentrated around this, um, if townwide event of uh, William. Uh, being injured and it's funny you know i like that the show values children's lives above uh adult because you know when adults die there's nobody seems to care i mean you have a direct contrast here you have uh uh moe's manual and you have uh william and no one cares <laughs> moe's shot up uh even though that happened in public everyone saw it and it was much more violent and there was like a clear offender and all the rest of it even though obviously you could argue he got what was coming to him and whatever by the it's not like he was just shot in the street but still uh, whereas William was killed by what could be described as an act of God, depending on what your definition is. And of course, they're going to end up blaming um, Hosteller and uh, and Fields. But but um, everyone has a lot of respect for um, or or a lot of concern for what's going on with William. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, where do you want to start? Um, or or generally, we can we can talk about Daniel Minahan because I think that there's a couple of cool technical things about him about some of the uh some of the shots and some of his um his uh motifs in the episode. i would love to dive into this because like i said i think this is the best you know no disrespect to ed bianchi who i think is phenomenal like we've talked about i think this is the best directed episode we've seen so far he has this interesting tick where he instead of doing a shot reverse shot like you'll typically see you know you'll typically see in television but also in a lot of movies like it's a very basic construction. It, it works. Sure. Um, he'll do a rack focus. So there's this scene where um, Jerry and is talking to Cy and Walcott, and Jerry is talking on the left side of the frame, 
and then it just rack focuses to uh, Sai, and you just get his reaction, which is just laughter, and then it focuses back to Jerry to continue the conversation. And it's interesting because it's not, instead of a uh, cut to very clearly delineate these two things, it's keeping Sai's reaction in the same moment as what he's reacting to. Which isn't, you know, I'm not saying that's a better or worse way to do it than any other way, but it's an interesting way, and it is a it is a different approach to that kind of scene. Um, you also see this. There's a, the way he frames this is very interesting. When Tom Nuttle returns to his bar, you just get this extreme close up of this man's face, and his cigar just protrudes across the whole frame. And there's this super long rack focus to Tom walking into the bar, and it's very western. Uh, you know, we think of one of the, well, you think of one of the hallmarks of like what we think of as a, as a, as a, uh, Leo, Sergio Leone spaghetti Western. It's these extreme close-ups, right? So it reminded right, me of right, that right. in a lot of ways, but also like, um, Sergio Leone's not doing a lot of rec focusing. So it's, it's, uh, it sets itself apart in that way. Yeah, no. And the, the things for me that stuck out were similar. So there's, um, there is this, uh, this great, uh, uh, shot um of uh it's it's probably my favorite shot in the episode when um size at the bar with um i forget who's the guy who's behind the bar that that um joni always oh i don't remember i can't remember his name but anyway he's there and then um wilcott's on his other on the other side and they're at the they're at the bar and you get both actually both of the things that i want to talk about in this this scene um the first is that i can't tell if it's um uh if it's the cinematographer or if it's uh, Minahan, um, the cinematographer being um, uh, James Glennon. Uh, but he does this thing where to introduce like a scene, uh, he he doesn't do this all the time, but in, in, a, in, a, in a few of these, uh, a few scenes, I started to notice it. Um, he sort of swings the camera in almost like on a dolly mm. from like left to, uh, from right to left. Um, he does it, uh, in this initial scene in the Bella Union when the three of them are at the bar. Um, and then just into like a medium, uh, to a medium shot uh, of the three of them. And and it slides into like, basically it slides into balance. And he does it also later on in that scene I think you're talking about with Wolcott and uh, Jari and uh, Sai. Um, when they're in, I'm not even sure where they are at that point. Is that still the Bella oh, Union? Oh, that's the Bella Union, yeah. That's also the Bella Union. Okay. Um and it's the same thing. It does the same slide in. And he does... So it's like this thing that you see him doing a few times. And again, I'm not sure if it's whose sort of idea that is, but I think it's kind of cool and, and unusual. Like it's a, you know, a, a, a motif unique to... Like it's not a thing in Deadwood that I've seen. Or maybe it is in other Minahan episodes and I just haven't noticed. Um, so that's cool. But the other thing I really like is in that initial scene that I mentioned with uh, Wolcott, the guy behind the bar, I can't remember his name, and um, and uh, and Sai, is that this... the the shot swings in they start talking and then when Sai is told that there's a problem with the sled in getting Moe's out um, first of all I think this might be one of my favorite Sai uh, performances yes this, this whole episode I, he's so great can I just say uh, like the, the most Sai Tolliver thing that has ever happened happened in this episode when he first sees Jerry and he like the way he says the word like commissioner he like growls yeah, he just he, growls he draws yeah. out the last syllable it's so good it's so funny i love it yeah no it's great and um he's just he's had enough this episode <laughs> you can just tell he's like all right I'm, I'm done with this whole situation this whole thing i'm 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 moved past it at this point um 
but yeah, he so in a similar moment, he uh, prior to that, he's uh, he's he gets told that there's a problem with the sled, um, and it cuts to a shot from behind the glass cabinet, and it's just size head, and he's moving to the right, and it's such a bizarre like framing because it goes from this very balanced kind of normal medium shot of like you know their upper half of their bodies to the shot of just his head, you know, uh, as he as he's as he's leering at um again whoever this guy is who i can't remember his name um about the sled and about how there's this problem with with getting modes to where he needs to go um and i just loved that shot i thought it was so um i don't know what it is about it i think by putting him into this glass cabinet it almost feels like it's like the bull in a china shop type kind of um imagery it just felt like everything was very fragile you know mm-hmm. and that he was sort of explosive i just thought it was really cool i really enjoyed that and then so that and then also this weird swinging like dolly shot that uh, my hand keeps using um i i thought those were those were quite different and then you know like i said it's not like we don't see unique things in episodes like last episode we saw lots of lots of um techniques that we hadn't seen before or, or very strange framing which we don't see as much here um and here we get yet more different things that weren't in last episode, but also aren't normal. So like you kind of get this. Um, I like that the directors get a little bit of freedom to do to do yeah. stuff like this in, in each episode. So I want to talk. The other thing I want to talk about with him and like I sort of uh, briefly mentioned earlier, the way he directs actors. There's one moment that I think is really key. It's when Saul and by the way, I think Saul, if you forgive the pun, is really the star of this episode. Um, I think, I mean, the episode, we haven't had enough puns on our podcast. That's I true. Think, you know, it used to be so pun filled and I've several in I've let it go in my daily life. And, yeah. Anyway. We'll get back to it. Um, we'll get back to it. But no, I think he, like the episode sent, he's kind of the center. He's kind of the heart of the episode in a, in a lot of ways. And there's this moment where he's in Al's office and like, they're having this very heated discussion and he makes a point and he kind of leans against the door to the balcony and it closes a little. Or like he jostles yeah. <laughs> it. And it's this very like, it's this moment of spontaneity. It almost feels like that was the first take in a good way. Because it's this moment of like, yeah, like in real life, you're having a conversation with someone. A little thing like that will happen. Just a little slip, just a little movement that feels natural and feels real. And it kind of grounds the scene in a way. In a way, you know, in a show where a lot of the dialogue is very heightened and very lofty. And especially in this scene, it makes them it makes Saul and feel like a real person in the, in his behavior. And it makes the, the other people in the room uh, by extension feel that way. And that's, you know, why I was kind of thinking of Hong Sang-soo is his movies are also very like, you kind of get the sense that they just went out and filmed and kind of, you know, filmed the actors talking and, you know, not, not that he shoots without a script, obviously, but there is that same sense of spontaneity and of, and, and of, and of simplicity. Like he's not overthinking it. And I see that in this episode. It's, it's it's funny that you say that about that scene because I actually had a different read on it. So as soon as there's, I don't know what the purpose of it is, and maybe I'm just reading it wrong. But when when Saul is first um, asked to be a part of this ruse, which everyone seems to be on it at this point, <laughs> um, and we have more and more people being dragged into it. Um, he says, "Well, first of all, after being insulted, he says, you know, I'm not going to do this unless you.'" You know, I won't be insulted if you want my help. Um, and then when he says, you know, all right, well, I just need your help. So can you just do it? And he turns to the, he like turns in, in profile and then like sort of looks at, at Al, like he's just accepted an acting role. 
And he's like, yeah, I'll help you. Like, I'll, yeah, I'll do it now. And he gets suddenly very theatrical. Mm. And then later on, when he's giving advice on or, or giving knowledge, which apparently, I, to my understanding, from what we then see subsequently, isn't actually all that useful advice, which is why I think they do the paper bag ploy, because they can't actually describe anything about any of these people. So they just go, it was someone with a paper bag on their head. And that's, <laughs> that's the person we met with Yeah, because we don't have very good enough Intel to, and they use the restaurant because all he because all that Saul knows is that he, yeah, that's the only he thing. ate with exactly. a guy. <laughs> exactly. So, but so when Saul's giving all this information, he's sort of like in this. So the reason I find it weird in the episode is that it's, it's a bit, um, too lighthearted for an episode where especially Saul is quite distressed by what's going on um, to be taken with this, you know, um, uh, this subterfuge. Um, and, but he is, I mean, he's like, and so when he, so anyway, so the reason I bring this up is that in that moment, which I also noted that where he leans on the door, it's like, he's trying to be casual. Like he's like, he is a secret agent. Like he is helping to do this subterfuge, but actually he's not. And that sort of is that undermining. It's sort of like a, um, like a Johnny English type, you know, not really suave kind of <laughs> thing. So that's how the scene read to me is that he's like he's being quite theatrical. Not, I don't want to say intentionally because he's trying to be like corny, but he's trying to be cool, and it's not working because it's not Saul's character at all. Um, so that's kind of how it came off to me. It, it I, I don't know if that's no, that's that interesting. That's an interesting read. That's that's not how I. That's not how I. Not what I picked up on, but I think. That is a that is a valid interpretation of that scene. Um, that's that's cool. I'll, after after this podcast is over, I'll send you a screenshot just of the the one, like as soon as he agrees to the plan, he like does this very weird pose. Which he does like, this turn to camera and to them. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's like a Shakespearean. It's very odd. It's like a very weird. The way thing he delivers that line too, I noticed. <laughs> it is very it is very off, and it's not very Saul. And it's this is again why I think John Hawks's performance is so is probably the best, my favorite in this episode, and why I called him the star of the episode. It's mm. moments like that where he is very clearly trying to uh, conceal something, but he a lot of actors are bad at playing bad liars because as an actor you right. have to be a yeah. good liar. But this is this moment where he's like he has to be like, yeah, I'll help you. And there's a bit of resentment and a bit of like, like, he, first of all, like the, the subtext of this whole scene is that he doesn't want to be there because he wants to be with Seth. He wants to be there for right. Seth. So there is in all of his lines when he's when he's telling them about Montana, there is that t- uh, that edge. There's that like twinge of just of just resentment. of Like, I can't believe you're keeping me here when all I know right. is that I had dinner with a guy. <laughs> that's 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 all I can give you. Um but yeah, it, I think John Hawks is phenomenal in this episode. Yeah, I mean, I, I just like John Hawks in general. Like, yeah. I, I've seen him in other things. He's a he's a great actor. Um, but yeah, I think he's particularly good in this episode. And I agree with you, too, that he is, oddly, in an episode that should, you would think, maybe be the Bullocks would be the the heart of the episode. But I think that, that, that Saul is definitely the main driver. He's the one who's involved in the most stuff. He crosses the different, you know, the Isringhausen sort of, end of things although he's not really involved in that um but like what's going on in the office with with al all the way to what's going on in the, you know he's the only one sort of bridge between those two ends of ends of camp um and by the way ends of camp this is not really like a point to, to bring up in any great detail but i just thought it was funny when they were talking about trying to get mo's uh from one end of camp to the other that it was taking two hours yeah. um 
because it just I don't know it put in perspective like the camp is not tiny but it's also not sorry it's not huge but it's also not tiny and it does actually take time to get things from people from A to B um, especially when you're incompetent or you know injured in some way but uh, I just thought that was a it was cool to get some a little bit of that that line um, was great because um, this is a moment where you know we talked about a couple episodes ago how the Khan and Leon subplot comic relief subplot didn't really land uh, i think this yeah. their subplot here lands really hard and i think it's executed so well because this is an episode like we said it's so bleak and just it's such a downer in so many places that you need these this moment of these two just utter buffoons trying to do something so, as simple as just drag a body from one place to another and completely right. failing <laughs> so when you i think i think leon's line is like we first we've been at this for two hours i'm starting to think that place is a mirage <laughs> right yeah i laughed i laughed really hard at that (laughs) no i agree and i think that um i i I, it definitely lands much better in this episode especially since like i don't know it didn't feel out of place it fit still you know uh when 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 con stapleton is looking to be treated by the doctor when there's a guy bleeding out on the ground and uh, a kid who's potentially gonna die uh you know he's like no what matters is my hernia so we need to address this um and you know so like it but it still fit in context of those other things and i think it was drawn more directly in, in contrast to those other things um whereas uh some of the well really there was that one particular episode it just felt like it was sort of out of place didn't really connect to anything and when it did connect to it didn't connect to in a way that was that felt good you know whereas here it's just sort of a, a small distraction um yeah I like this this sort of sequence of uh, of of Dan collecting people for speaking of Saul, uh, collecting people for Al. Um, he's I I find Dan really endearing. Yeah, you know, me like too. As a character, he's he's great, and um, I thought that it was cool seeing him go around trying to collect, and especially since he doesn't. First of all, ordering people to do just by threat, you know, just to to do what he says because he knows he can't go back to Al empty-handed is great. Um, but then also the fact that, like, for example, he doesn't actually find Hawkeye and, like, deduces that actually Al didn't really want Hawkeye. Hawkeye, he wanted Saul. Uh, so he wanted, uh, he wanted um, uh, Silas uh, Adams. Um, and uh, it's just funny to see how that, that, um, uh, that sort of all plays out. Dan is such a fun character because he is, like, in any other show, he'd just be the enforcer archetype and he's very silent and he just and grim and he just does what the boss tells him to do. And he's very threatening and intimidating, whereas Dan is this or maybe like comic relief. Or yeah, something. exactly. Whereas Dan is this guy who like just cares so much about everything. <laughs> he's just has this like he's an he's obviously an enforcer for a not very good man, but he has this huge heart and he just like he just cares so profoundly about everything that's going on and he's so shaken by what happened to William uh just like Trixie is and he's just and he's you know we talked about on the first episode of the season when Al finds him uh weeping because he's upset that that Adams might be usurping him um he is this guy who just he's just he's so emotional and he has and he he cares so much and I just love that yeah it's great and 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 speaking of um uh, you know, caring, I think that also plays into, you know, so um, between Dan and Trixie and Saul, you know, there's that scene in the in the gym where Trixie and Saul are, are bickering and there's just this change in dynamic between all the characters, not because they're actually upset with each other, but because they just can't handle what's going on. Um, and I like, so speaking of characters being under stress, I think that was immediately what I thought of was, was those interactions. And I think that they're really, 
um, it's it's nice to see this idea of people fighting not because there's it's part of a dramatic arc that like now Trixie and Saul are in some sort of relationship troubles it has nothing to do with that right it's about something that's completely external to them that is impacting their lives which is a much more realistic you know portrayal of these characters and it makes them feel more real because you're like well if these were real characters things in the camp would stress them out would cause those things to impact what we care about which is you know Saul and Trixie's relationship for example um, or at least I, I care about it, right? It's an it's an interesting, or or it's like what you you consider to be like core to their their relationship dynamic is their you know romantic side of things, and to see that impacted by what's going on by the other, um, or to not see that directly impacted, but to to see that they even take a break from that uh, to be upset with each other because they're taking out their emotional baggage. Basically, I think it's it's kind of a cool way to handle the characters. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, speak, I, should, do we want to talk a little bit about Tom Nuttall? Like, I think we know so little about him. Speaking of characters who care so much, he is, we first, we yeah. first see him in this episode, just in an alley, just sobbing. Uh, Jane yeah. finds him and I just, yeah, Jane has no idea what's going and on. And like this, there's this devastating moment <laughs> later in the episode. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's funny that Jane is the only person in camp who has no clue what happened. Yeah, it takes her a minute to figure it out. When she does eventually get on board, but yeah, she has to meet, she has to find Tom to... to, to, to and also, like, again, I'm doing an aside to an aside, I know. But the moment later where she's That's talking right. to, where she's talking to Joni and they're both convincing themselves that, um, like, why they shouldn't be there. Where she's like, well, yeah. you know, what what they what do they need with an unlubricated drunk? And Joni's like, well, right. I would just faint at the sight of blood. I, I, I can't be there. Right, 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 um, right. That, that was nice. And a, that was a really nice character moment. But Tom, there's this, like heartbreaking moment and again the way Minahan shoots it he walks into the bar and there's this reverse shot of the bicycle leaning against a wall and it's shot like in this very stark light it's it's shot it's like this very grim uh gray image it's almost like this it's it's like he's looking at it from like through a veil like a ghostly veil um, and he just leans over and he's like, will you get that out of here? It's like, oh my God, that's right. so sad. He loved the bicycle so much. I know, it was such a symbol of hope just two episodes ago. <laughs> and it's so funny that Deadwood can like, you know, what was this moment of like unrestrained joy for pretty much everyone in town uh, for something kind of, that we think of from our modern perspective as kind of ridiculous can be turned and it doesn't feel ridiculous anymore. Like it, you know, as a symbol, you don't, it doesn't retain any of that silliness. It immediately, and I think partially due to the way Minahan shoots it, it immediately becomes so tragic, um, like genuinely tragic. Yeah. Now it's like a symbol of death, you know, and it's awful because of course this, you know, uh, Tom's bar is also where, uh, where Wild Bill was shot. And where the, and where, um, Moe's Manuel's brother was shot. Exactly. So this place is not not great, and everything there gets turned. All the happy things get turned into sad things. There, <laughs> it is the place where things go to die or or become symbols of death, and it's just kind of horrible in that way. Um, which is, you know, just a matter of circumstance, but it is quite depressing. Um, it's also where what was it, Slippery Dan or, or Slippery uh, Dan? Uh, no, well, Bummer Dan. Bummer Dan yeah, gets shot, right? because they think he's Slippery Dan, but then later isn't Slippery Dan also killed in the there? 
is he killed in the? I can't, I can't remember where he's killed. The, uh, my, yeah. But anyway, yes, more death. So yeah, no, no, it's, it is the place where everyone dies. Yeah. If we ever see a character coming in there that we like, we should be <laughs> cautious, uh, I guess, because uh, there's a good chance it'll just end up yeah. dead. Um, there was a. There's also a. I know we're just jumping all over the place, but you know, why not? Um, I just want a, a line that stuck out to me. I'm sure it stuck out to you as well. Um, so when Jari, so first of all, Jari's back in camp, which is crazy. And then he comes and speaks to Sai and, uh, Wolcott. Um, and, uh, they're just both not interested in dealing with Jari anymore. They're just like, all right, enough. Um, and when Jari leaves to say that he's going to go figure out what's what and determine what's going on in the camp which of course means he's going to go get played or whatever you know um, but he thinks he's got everything in hand of course um he leaves and and Wolcott has the has the cojones to say uh i am a sinner who does not expect forgiveness but i am not a government official <laughs> that was a great line i love that i was like all right like you could see Sai saying that or somebody else who's like not like a serial murderer, but you were literally <laughs> a serial murderer, which I guess, I don't know if we're supposed to, if we're meant to take that in earnestness so that like government officials are even worse or if we're supposed to well, in the world of, see the irony in him saying In the that. world of Deadwood, government officials are like the lowest of the low. They're the, they're the worst yeah, scum. I and I don't think we're meant to take <laughs> Wolcott at face value. Like obviously he is not a better person, but I think it goes to show like, this is a very unifying theme in Deadwood, right? Like everyone can get behind the idea of, oh, well, the government, they can go fuck themselves. They're terrible. <laughs> everyone agrees. It's just, just um, it's crazy. It's a crazy way to view the world. Like not to view the, I'm not to say that people who, 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 who have that opinion of the government are, are crazy. I'm just saying that the, like Wolcott specifically <laughs> to have that, that, uh, juxtaposition is nuts <laughs> it's just nuts um but anyway sorry i just had to point that out because i'm glad you did because it's a it's a weighing on my mind yeah <laughs> um so yeah and then uh uh i suppose yeah you want to talk about the the bullocks yeah man like uh, we talk about good performances um timothy oliphant and and uh anna gunn in this episode and you know it's it's easy to talk about one thing that gets on my nerves is when people talk about a great performance because the actor cried. Like right. to me, it's like, well, it's like the first thing they teach you in acting school <laughs> is how to look sad. Like any actor can look sad. Sure. You know, you, it's very rare to see an actor who doesn't, who's trying to look like they're sad and that it doesn't come across. You don't see that right. very often, but all the time you see, Oh my God, like he got, so he was really crying. It's like, well, he wasn't really Come on, like we could, can we talk about can we talk about performance performance along any other axis? Um, wow, this is, I, 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 <laughs> I I feel what you're saying. I feel what you're saying. I just think that that I don't know. I think people might find that controversial, but I agree with you. I actually, it's the one thing that even bad actors tend to be able to. It's do. that and uh, screaming. Um, Those are the two things. Getting yeah, really mad, sure. Which is another. Which by the way, Adam's getting really mad in this episode. Also very good, but. Right. No, but, but like they are so, and Oliphant especially is so. There's this very is very tender, and very raw in a way that I really appreciated. The way that his voice breaks when he's speaking, and like any actor can have someone put eye drops in their eyes and make tears stream down their face. But you, 
it feels so genuine and it feels and not that every performance has to be realistic not that a great performance is necessarily realistic but in this case like i think a good performance it doesn't have to be realistic but it has to come from the heart you have to feel like that character has a beating heart and that even if it's not how a real person would act it's how that character would act sure um and you really feel seth bullock in this in this moment i agree i think i think they're both really good in this Again, I mean, I just like I said, I think Anna Gunn is is, uh, just really great in 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 Deadwood. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. And uh. And by the way, I don't. I just want to go just very briefly as an aside to say about Breaking Bad. My my dislike of her character in Breaking Bad. It's not really reflective of her performance. I think she doesn't get enough to do there. And I think that she's a really good actor, partially because of Deadwood. That's most of my basis for that um and so my, my quibbles with her and, De- and breaking bad are not are not an anna gun um so anyway back to back to deadwood um so i think that's that's all really good but i think what really sold this scene for me because you know fine i guess i could buy that seth at the point where he would be sad about william dying or maybe out of empathy for for martha it, it's not that and that doesn't change with what I'm about to say, but I was more taken in with the scene where with the, so Sarah has uh, wrote this this script, and having Seth actually, because I th- I was under the impression when when Doc Cochran said that he would benefit from hearing his mother's voice and his father's voice, that he was implying that Seth had taken on the father role and he would be you know, sort of, as Seth, be his dad, you mm-hmm. know, basically, at least in his last moments. But then what actually happens is that Seth sort of pretends to be his brother. Um, and I thought that that was extremely That classic. broke my heart. Yeah, it was so awful. When I realized what was happening, I was like, oh yeah, my right? god. Yeah, right? Oh my awful. god. And what's great about this, because what, what, first, what first really hit me is this moment where uh, Martha says, like, I should never have brought him here. And there's a pause and Seth just says, yes. yes. Like, that's yeah. all yeah, I can yeah, say yeah. is, yeah, this yeah. never would have happened. And yeah. yeah, this moment, which is quite harsh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it feels like he's, you know, not to suggest that, I don't know if he's blaming her, but he does almost feel like he's blaming. Well, I think her. he's blaming himself. I like, he is, I think he feels, maybe that too, he yeah. feels like he brought them there. Right. Like this is the promise. Well, he did build the house. It's not like he didn't know she was coming. Yeah. Like year. he, he, this is the promise that he made to his brother. This is the agreement sure. that they had that she really, you know, again, we talked about early in the season, how much of a say she had in it. And she seemed amenable to it. Like, obviously this is right. uh, someone who can support her and her child. Like this is in this, time period something she needs um but yeah this this moment of just uh, seth is completely broken and he says yeah you this is this never would have happened if you hadn't come here he would still be alive he wouldn't have you know and again yeah this comes back to this moment where I, I completely agree with you. This is the, where, where Cochran says he needs to hear his father's voice and, and I'm going to start tearing up because it's so, it's so, it is great writing. I think Sarah Hess did a phenomenal job and it is uh, performed so well and it's shot so well. Mm-hmm. The, the cabin is so dark at this point and you just get this close. And this is what's stuck in my head is this close up of Martha's face and she's just surrounded like maybe just my monitor, but it's just black. There is, there's no detail. There's nothing behind her. It is just, she is in a black void. 
Uh, I, I was, I was really struck by that. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I, I, I agree with you. And I think, um, you know, there's also this, I, I don't know if this is supposed to be, or if we'll see any interrogation of this. Like Seth didn't have to live in a frontier town. There's no real reason for him to be here. He wanted to live in a frontier town for some reason after being a sheriff in other places where, which I think had more rule of law and things like that. That seemed to be the implication um, in Montana, I guess. Um, and then he just decides he's going to go to this frontier town and start a hardware store. But like, if you wanted to keep your family safe, like a frontier town is not the place to start a family or raise a family or whatever, right? That's where you go to like make your fortune. Uh, which he's not even doing. Yeah. So like, I don't even know why he's in the frontier town. Again, the real Seth Bullock really did do this, and I'm not sure what the motivation was, but like it doesn't seem to be doing the things that one does to go to a, you know, because it's not like it's a nice place to live. Um, so I don't know how much sort of the ambition of being a frontiersman and the consequences of that are going to be interrogated. But I mean, that is, if, if you want to look at Seth's side of things and his blame is not just living in a normal city or even just a town or something like that, but that's part of an actual state with actual infrastructure where things like this are probably at least a little bit less frequent. Um, he was like, no, I'm going to live in the wild West, the literal wild West that people will make movies about. And then a TV show in a <laughs> <laughs> uh, hundred something years. But like he, that's where he, that's where he chose to live. And um, you know, that's, a, that, that has consequences and this is it, right? This yeah. is, you know, he, it's people he knows and likes dying. And it's also, you know, being able to make friends who are immediately going to get shot and killed, like Wild Bill. Um, but that's, you know, that's one thing. He's not responsible for Wild Bill, but he is responsible for uh, for his family, and he brought them into this, so. Yeah, you know. I mean, I think uh, the very beginning of the episode, Hostetler says something like, you know, the white men in this town are shooting and stabbing each other in the street every single day. Like, I think the show is definitely, like, th- that's the subtext of this episode, right, that you're hitting on, is, like, that's what happens in Deadwood. And I, I think it's cool because I, I think a worse version of this show is like, yeah, man, it's Deadwood. It's just grim and bleak. And there's just this like the, I won't say it. A a different HBO show is all about just (laughs) to that one listener who wrote in, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Um, A different, but you know, even a more generic different HBO show would be like, it's just everything. Everyone's dying all the time. And that's just how life is here in this town and not really making a, cogent point about life in that time period other than to say it's bad uh deadwood i think is making a much more nuanced point by saying over the course of the show like good things can happen in deadwood and good sure. relationships can happen but at the end of the day yeah you're in the frontier and like this is the risk you take and these are the consequences you take on and this is the risk you take in choosing to live here which most of them have done yeah. although i should point out very significantly people like uh uh joni and and trixie and all the prostitutes and women and in in, uh, for most for the most part are not there by choice or you have somebody like alma who was dragged into deadwood did not want to move there um by her husband because he wanted to be a prospector and then that was you know uh that blew up on his face um but I mean, that is, you know, going back as far as the first season, then I guess, you know, you're seeing this, this is a theme of like, and, and, you know, it's, 
I suppose it's not so profound to, to say, you know, the in the pursuit of gold, people die, right? That's mm-hmm. every pirate story. That's the, you know, the Wild West. That's all these things. But um, it is, it is, it is a, it hits home a bit more when it's a family, when it's kids. And I think that that's, you know, and even in this town, right? Like Moe's, in a similar fashion, Moe's killed his brother over a gold claim, right? And, and is it for the same you know, general purpose of, you know, making it in the frontier. Um, and that was paid almost no attention mm-hmm. versus this. So I think it, it does hit home. We see that contrast a lot more with, when it's a, a kid who's hurt or I guess dying. I, I don't think it's clear that he's dead at the end, but I think that's the, implication. yeah, I, I agree. That is the implication. I think the, ch- I think you, the choice is, is what's what sets Deadwood apart, right? Like there are a million shows about how, about the wild West, about how eh, everything was terrible. But I think Deadwood is, you're absolutely right. It's different because these are people who have chosen to be here. They they have made the decision to live their lives here, for the most part. I, you know, Alma is, is and, and many of the prostitutes are the exception, you're, you're right. But it, it makes it a much more nuanced version of this, oh, things were so terrible story, because this is not a world that uh, they just have to be in. And not that any of them could just pick up and leave, but you know, for a lot, for most of them, what's stopping them? They continue. They choose to continue to live here, not just to not just to choose to move here, but to continue to live here every single day. Right, even after seeing people. Yeah, they they wake up every morning and they live yeah. their lives here, and that is a choice every day to continue to do that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that we're seeing that that manifests more now, you know, how much we can read into this is like punishment for ambition or whatever. I don't know. It remains to be seen. It might be worth revisiting some of, uh, Reverend Smith's, uh, uh, sermons <laughs> <laughs> for all we know, there was a uh, hidden messages. In there. <laughs> um, speaking of reverence, uh, did you think, uh, Kramed would come back? No. And I, I had, you know, it's funny. Like I had forgotten about him, but I instantly remembered him when he came back. Me too. Um, me too. <laughs> And it's funny, this character, like, I don't remember him having this demeanor is the thing. And I don't, I don't really have a, he's become much more like austere, like austere know. is the word I was going to use. Yeah. It's, he's very serious. He's very not drab, but very like, like, uh, when he's talking to Farnham, Farnham makes a comment. Like he's, he basically makes a jab at him for his role in spreading the plague. And his response is just stone faced silence. No response. Yep. Um, like he is not even going to entertain that conversation and you get like an instant clear sense of who this guy is since that happened as he's a guy who is obviously gone. He is, he has, can you say taken the cloth or is that specific to particular denominations? Like, I don't know. Yeah. You know, you got two Jews. (laughs) I don't, I don't know. Wrong Um, wrong person. Also, also by the way, great moment when, when Al, uh, meets with Saul and he immediately makes an anti-Semitic remark and Saul is like if you want my help don't do that what's yeah. wrong with you <laughs> um, it just becomes so second nature yeah. now. he just can't help himself yeah. but yeah Andy Kramed he's like you totally like it, it, he comes into focus so quickly what this guy has been through the personal like to- uh, toll it's taken on him and the place he has come to in his life and the peace that he has made with it uh, just in that one moment like that is good writing it's funny it's funny though because like um on one hand he was never a funny character or like a, in any way i don't know if he's ever smiled ever 
Um, and any, so like just that's the kind of character he is versus other characters who are either funny or smile or laugh or do something right they have at least moments of levity he's never been that character so just to be clear like that hasn't changed but I agree with you that he has changed in the, at least in his moral character right he's he's there to see this you know it's a very clear moral purpose he's there to see this kid who's dying and to give some peace to the family and the rest of it um, but it is a, like you know in a way it's a little bit of this um, uh you know the Garrett Dillhunt thing coming back as a new character. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not a different character, but he is new in that. You know, the last time we saw him, he was not a a priest or a sorry, he wasn't a. I guess he's a. He's a, a minister, I think. Minister, yeah. Um, he's a minister. Um, so he has come back in an entirely new role. Um, which is kind of a funny thing to see. I I, I was just seeing him return. I had I couldn't help but think of this uh this other, um this other return we saw yeah. at the beginning. And it's significant, right? Like it's significant that this is a character we know because I think it could have very easily been oh uh, at just at this moment, yeah, a minister comes to camp because the camp he heard that a camp the camp needed a minister just like the school teacher came to camp because they didn't have a school teacher. Right. Like this could have very I I could very easily see the version of this episode where it's just a new character all of a sudden. And I think that would have worked fine, but I think there is such weight to have it be a person we know but also a person who almost destroyed the camp previously yep to oh good point you know yeah. like that's that's what we know him for um and do we are we going to you know my question is are we going to see him in any sort of like is this a reintroduction of a character so that he can have a like a significant role or is he just going to be a sort of a background well it'll be interesting because since reverend smith there's been really no role there's been no presence of religion in the camp at all that's true so i think yeah. it'll be cool to see that dynamic return if it does like i, I would really like to see that I was actually wondering if they were going to have Saul go off and like do a Kaddish or something like that. But Oh God. Oh, Deadwood, please have him do that. Please. <laughs> oh, that would be so that good. Would have been, uh, that would have been an interesting choice for the show, but uh, I, I don't know that we're going to see that. I think that moment would have been the thing. I don't know that we'll ever see like, Saul practicing Judaism just because of the nature of the time period, but I would, I would weep if we see him do if like if he die if Williams is dead and we see him do the <laughs> mourners cottage next week, I will cry and cry. <laughs> yeah, that will uh, that'd be interesting. I mean, like you know, we see it in you know it happens in comic books, right? You have characters in like Marvel comics do it and stuff. Like mm-hmm. that. So you know, it's not like it's unprecedented, but yeah, I agree. It's um, it's a long shot. Um, but yeah, so yeah, we'll see, I mean we'll see if Crane is uh well, we'll see if he becomes more of a character in the uh the camp again um but it is it is it's good to have that element back in things because i was thinking that it, it was sort of absent and then all of a sudden there he is um i don't know how much else there is there's a this very brief moment where mr Wu tries to give some sort of uh uh thing to to jewel who says she can't hold it i'm not sure if it's supposed to be like, a, like a, i think it's a drink isn't it it's either a drink. I assumed it was like a balm or something that was supposed to like to for to ease. Pain. So my interpretation, and maybe this is completely off, but I think the idea is that he sees her rubbing her hands together and thinks she's cold, so he's handing her a hot thing to hold in her hands, and she says she can't hold it because she's like that's not the problem. Like she can't hold a cup in her hands. I. Th- I oh. think that might be the idea, I, but again, oh, I, I'm not okay. sure. I assumed it was for William. Okay, it might have been for William too. I thought he knew what was going. But on. he offers it to her, and which I think is uh, it's, yeah, and that doesn't offer it to anyone yeah. else. He doesn't say like you'd give it to her if she. Yeah, because Saul right? walks up right after that. 
Right, exactly. So yeah, that maybe that makes more sense. But anyway, it's what's nice. I thought about this moment is that it gives something for Wu to do that doesn't have anything to do with Al or anything mm-hmm. else. It's just like a moment of humanity. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, we're I don't know how much of the Chinese side of camp we're ever going to really get, but you know, these little moments of interaction are at least better than nothing. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose it's nice to see Wu like part of the general dynamic of the camp. Right. Right, not necessarily in a power struggle or in some sort of business arrangement, but just you know being a part of the camp. Yeah. Way. Um. So that, and uh, I guess uh, the other thing I wanted to mention that I think, uh, well, I know you're a Richardson fan. Yes. Uh, oh. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God, Richardson in this episode. It's, he's got. So we've seen him with antlers <laughs> in the past, but now we know for sure that he prays to some sort of God he's created. It seems. Um. <laughs> like that wasn't a thing before but now it was a thing um and uh who he by the way he he he, he follows uh farnham's instructions in um hiding the antlers when uh alma comes out of her room but doesn't when the actual minister comes into the uh the place. i think my so favorite he has a clear hierarchy of who he he thinks this might affect i think my fate one of my my favorite not my favorite moment in the episode but just because there's so much good but my favorite maybe humorous moment in the episode is when Andy Kramed is leaving and and Farnham says, don't look to your left in case you're offended by idolatry. And it cuts back yeah. to Richardson, who's still standing in the exact same position, pointing these yep. antlers at the deer. And you head. realize that he's been there the whole time. Like I didn't even notice, but yeah. Exactly. And the way that shot is framed is like something out of a horror movie. It reminded me of like, um, I didn't like the movie hereditary, but it reminded me of something out of like out of that, which is just this very stagey, uh, composition and like the way he's the way he's presented it is just like very stock still presenting these antlers in this very cultish way um it is it is like very but you know but it's also because we know it's richardson and you know it's funny because richardson sort of gives this sort of um uh he's not like a warm and cuddly sort of, uh <laughs> impression he doesn't give that sort of impression uh but he is actually quite a like normal and well no he's not normal at all but he's um what's such what's the word i'm looking for he's, he's very um unthreatening yeah you know he's just a very like harmless kind of person um so like you're right in a different context this would be kind of like are they introducing kind of a weird occult thing into the show no no it's just Richardson <laughs> who thinks that the antlers protect um uh, protect his uh, his the people that he cares about, and so that that's it. That's the whole thing, uh, and it's not a religion anybody's ever heard of because he invented it. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's Richardson, and uh, this is again, like I said, the antlers and Richardson are iconic in the, in fact, in the Deadwood subreddit, which I'm sure you've noticed if you've been there. Um, there's like the antlers and Richardson sort of stuff ends up being quite represent. It, it's like it. it it is on the sidebar and it also is like a part of what people identify with the show. Um, just because it's such a bizarre, again, this is, the show is so, I mean, I, we're in it. So it's kind of like hard to see from an outside perspective, but if you were describing this as a Western to somebody and you're like, yeah. And then there's this guy who helps out at the hotel and he's like <laughs> this, this old guy with a beard and he thinks that like he, but he uses antlers to pray for things, but he's like, but he's invented this. But also, he's kind of in love with the the woman who who's living in one of the rooms. So yeah, 
And that's just a small part of the show, but that is also in the show. <laughs> like, it's really strange to put in your show, but it is, you know, there. And I guess it sort of involve, evolves out of this, you know, interest in, like, introducing comic elements into the show. Um, but it also is so strange to just, like, fit into things. Especially to attach it to an already, like, Evie's already, like, a, a farce of a character, right? Yeah. And be like, no, what we need is something even more farcical than that. Uh, we're going to have somebody for him to work with on a day-to-day basis and create sort of a faulty towers vibe. That's what we're going to do. Um, which is just strange, but, you know, there we are. That's Richardson. Um, yeah, we didn't really, I, I guess, the if there's anything else, it's really just uh, Hostetler and, and Fields. Do you have any overall opinion on where this is? Because I know last, last episode you predicted that there would be consequences. Um, I mean, are there's a lot of there's clearly two competing philosophies here about how to deal with with the fallout of after what's happened yeah i mean the the first of all when we see steve in the bar like we think that they were right to flee because steve is all about like we got to get them it's all their fault yeah no one's listening to him but yeah. yeah um and you know partially obviously to absolve you know, Steve isn't really responsible for what happened, but he does feel responsible. And this is his way of absolving right. that, res- that feeling of, of guilt, um, is to just retreat into racism. Cause that's, cause that's Steve. It's where he feels most comfortable. Yeah. You know? I do think that if they return to camp that, you know, I, Seth will forgive them. I think Seth is a, is, is someone who is, he is an understanding person and he is understand, you know, obviously, you know, we don't know how this tragedy will affect him. It's possible I'm completely off base and he'll, he'll just completely snap. Snap. Yeah. Uh, that's possible. But I, I feel like Seth is the kind of guy who will look at this situation and say, look, you know, it was an accident. There was there. I, I can't say like, I can't assign blame. And it's, you know what? I just, it just occurred to me that I feel like this was foreshadowed. We talked about in the first episode of this season with Slippery Dan and Bummer Dan, the situation where someone was murdered, but you can't really say it was anyone's fault. Even the person Mm -hmm. who pulled the trigger. We talked about how Seth kind of has to navigate that contradiction in that moment of like, someone's dead on the floor because someone else shot a gun, but you can't, they thought it was, yeah, you can't really say like it was murder. You can't really assign blame to anyone to any one person. So I, th- it's, I think in my opinion, that kind of foreshadowed what happened here is like, there's a lot of different actors at play in what, in what went down, but you can't really fault any of them. It's just something that sort of happened. Yeah, that's a good call. I mean, I was trying to think about what the, co- what the corollary would be for modern times. I mean, obviously you can still be knocked up by a horse, I suppose, yeah. but generally what would happen is like a car is, you know, ends up hitting someone but it's like let's say it leaves a the lot from a dealership and hits somebody on the side of the road because it was propped up and they were running the motor or something yeah. like that and then it slipped and fell and then like hit someone right mm-hmm. um but even then that would be much more clear because a horse is an autonomous you know what i mean like a car doesn't yeah it goes forward right whereas like a horse is completely unpredictable so you could set it up so that the car coming off of the ramp or whatever it's on or the boot or whatever that's holding it in place um it's pointed where it won't hit pedestrians so then you can you can more clearly dictate that but a horse i mean the horse is going to run around it's a wild horse literally by definition you know it's not going to behave so you know 
it, it's hard to really attribute that to anybody in particular unless someone's writing it actively. Well, the other thing with the car is like you could in that situation you might be able to say, well, they didn't follow the proper safety procedures. But like what safety like all all that Hostetler and Fields could do was what they did, which is tie him down. It's not like right. they they were it's not like there were there's any regulations that they weren't following. Right. It's not like there were, you right. know. And they were they were well they were actively trying to tie it down, right? They weren't able to get him tied down yeah. and then that's when he sort of And like you say, yeah, yeah exactly. it's a wild animal. Like at the end of the day, if you lose control, you're you lose control. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I think I think okay, so well well I think it also goes without saying we don't think that these characters should be punished for what no. happened. But I think I think, so just to be clear, we're like justifying this, but like it is also in the context. Having said that, um, as for what will actually happen, I don't know. Um, I like the, con- the um, you have these two perspectives that don't, from, maybe I'm wrong, maybe they do map on to like modern perspectives uh, from like, for example, the black community. Um, but these two characters have two very different ideas of what to do. And like Fields is a big fan of the runaway to, you know, live to fight another day kind of approach of just getting the hell out of there, which in my opinion is a very reasonable thing to want to do. And Hostetler wants to sort of, you know, preserve his pride and honor, right? He won't leave, but he won't let them kill him or in any way sort of hurt him. Cause he's like, no, I'll do it myself. Um, it's like he has this uh, like outsized sense of honor and pride, which, in my opinion, I I don't even know how that's gotten him as far as it's gotten him in this in that time period. Like it seems like that would have led to his death uh, at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, he yeah he seems to be so set on this that he's willing to go back to the camp, which to me seems like an absolutely terrible idea. I think Fields has the absolute right idea. Go to Oregon. What do you care about this frontier town? Go somewhere else. I don't know. And there is guilt too, right? Like I think Hostetler does yeah. feel guilty, and he. I think in the same way that as they all do, of yeah, course. of course. Like he does feel like he bear, you know, he does bear some responsibility, and he wants to make it right. But I think you're right that in this situation, obviously, the smart move is just to run. But on the other hand, like this is also a situation where running makes you look even guiltier, because if obviously Steve is very racist and he's a terrible person, but his instinct that the horse could only have come from the livery is correct. So if people go to the livery and they find that Hostetler and Fields have fled, then I think Hostetler is right to assume that they might come after them and that it might be the smarter move to go back to camp and try to make amends. Well, I suppose if that was based in any sort of, but I mean, what we saw last time Steve came after them, for no reason whatsoever, uh, you know, he didn't need a reason to. to That's go true. No, you're right. Like this is them. not. So you know, yeah. this he's not dealing. They're not dealing with rational, which of course, I mean, they're racist. It's not rational in the first place. Um, so I suppose there's not much to expect there. But I mean, I can see why he would want to do this. But I think Fields gives the impression of the kind of person, just based on his reputation and the fact that he was like not a soldier, but like he's just, he seems like a hustler, right? Mm. And he seems to have gotten by by getting himself out of situations that would lead to his untimely demise. Um, and he has the correct survival instinct on that. And I think that if they just use the advantage of them having left early now, they would get to Oregon or wherever they're trying to get to 
fast enough that I mean, what are they going to come all the way to Oregon to come after them for just for this one particular thing? I don't know. I guess they don't know how Seth's going to react. Maybe that's what they're more concerned about because Seth actually might pursue them that far because he has a personal issue with it, and also he's a law enforcement officer, and so there might be actually some sort of desire to or, or reason to go that far. But I can't see Steve going to Oregon to chase them down, right? So I don't know. I'm not sure what the just the, the logic is, but I do. I am concerned for what will happen. Oh yeah, me too. Forward. Me too. <laughs> it can't be good. No. It can't be good. Um. So is that it? I think so. Um. Yeah. That, that Trixie pressure that covers everything that, um, that I can think of. Right. So there's there's that brief moment where Trixie pressures Alma. Yes, yeah, so uh, she does bring marriage. up the marriage again, and Alma basically says, "I don't want to be. I don't know if I want to be in another loveless marriage," which is a fair point. Um, it's a fair point, yeah. But but she does she does seem to like the idea of of, uh, of Ellsworth as a as a father. So that was nice. But yeah, I guess it hasn't really moved forward. It's just worth pointing out. Yeah, just a, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's everything. So then, so next week uh, we we're gonna do a double feature. Mm-hmm. Um, so the last two episodes of Deadwood. Season two, which are, of yes, that was season two, of our current run of Deadwood, yes. which we will then pick up very shortly after, uh, after we deal with, um, <laughs> the behemoth that is. <laughs> okay, you said deal with because that's how I feel about it too. <laughs> I mean, let let me be very clear about this. Okay, not to talk. We're not talking about Game of Thrones here. Okay, we're talking about the podcast about Game of Thrones. Yes, Stark. Yes, I am very excited. To do Star Trek. Me too. I am absolutely excited <laughs> to dig into those episodes. I'm very excited to do uh, Star Contrast again. I'm excited. While the longer episodes could be a plus or minus, depending on how good the episodes are, I think it's even more to discuss, which is fun. And um, I like that we're getting back our the director that we both like. Um, so for all these reasons, I'm excited, and I like discussing Game of Thrones for all for all its ups and downs. And it has had ups. Let's be very clear. Um, so I'm excited for that. But anyway, it's only eight episodes and then we'll be back um, on to Deadwood. And the only reason we're cramming these last two episodes is because Game of Thrones is about to start again, which is crazy um, mm-hmm. after all this time. Um, so yeah, uh, so the last two episodes of uh, Deadwood, what are, they, what are they called? They're called The Whores Can Come and right. Boy the Earth Talks To. Right, right. Okay, excellent. So I, I love the last title. The, the first one is seems like a uh, an edgy pun. Um, so I guess we'll, uh, yeah, we'll <laughs> we'll see how those two episodes fit together as a double feature Ed, because we're turning them into a double feature. Ed Bianchi directed episode the last one, so we got that. Okay, there you go. Who's, who's who's next week? Uh, Greg Feinberg. Greg Feinberg. Okay, excellent. I think he's directed some good ones as well. So yeah, no, I think yeah, good. excellent. All right. Well, I'll talk to you next. Okay. Time.